it's, uh, it's great to see you tonight. If you've got your Bible, turn to Matthew. Nope, don't. I was just looking at a verse in Matthew. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings 19. I want to look at the idea tonight of, uh, of how what happens in the gospel when, uh, when I am weak. And so that we're going to look at Elijah part two. And uh, last week we looked at Elijah part one, which is 1 Kings chapter 18. So we're going to go to 1 Kings 19. Am I a little bit loud? No? Okay, great. That's perfect. Um, <clears throat> 1 Kings 19. In just a minute, I'm going to bring Will back up, and Will is going to give a little testimony about some of what we're talking about tonight. And I just think that there's an idea that Christians don't have depression. They don't have, uh, they should just be complete overcomers. They shouldn't have anything kind of go wrong with them. And then when something does go wrong, the idea is probably that it's sin in their life. And now a lot of times that's true. A lot of times if like the wheels continue to just fall off, well, you got you to gotta wonder like, am I doing something wrong? But there's a lot of times that stuff just happens to you. And the question is, how are you going to respond? How are you going to bounce back? What is God's heart in that? And so let's just take a look at 1 Kings chapter 19. As we do that, I'm going to do a quick review of 1 Kings 18, but I just want to pray that the Lord will speak through his word. So let's bow. Father, I ask that you would just speak through your word tonight, Lord. I ask that you would visit us in this place. I thank you for bringing everybody out. It's a beautiful day, Lord. There's a lot of other stuff people could be doing, um, not unlike a Sunday morning when folks make the sacrifice to come and join with your people and hear from you. And so we ask that tonight you would help us to hear directly from you, Lord. Speak to our hearts, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, Lord. Amen. So here's what I think would be, would be good to start. Uh, I thought about doing this about three different times, and I think... Uh, I think this is what we ought to do. Turn to 2 Corinthians. Let's just pause on 1 Kings. Turn to 2 Corinthians. Every once in a while we do this where we talk with the people around us. 2 Corinthians, uh, I want you to look at a famous little chapter or famous passage in there. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 8 through 10. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 8 through 10. I'm going to read it to you. Paul said, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I want you just to become a little modern-day commentator on this passage. So just for about 120 seconds, about two minutes, I want you to just kind of break this down with the person right around you and figure out how in the world can we, if we are Christians, how can we say truly when all of these kinds of things happen to us, no, really, I am weak, without it being simply a motivational talk. Ready? Go. All right. So there is this idea that if you're a Christian, there is a strength in your weaknesses. 
And every one of us has weaknesses. But I think we're going to see that sometimes those weaknesses result in these emotional lows, these, in fact, super emotional lows, some of which we bring on ourselves, some of which just are brought on to us. So let's, let's do a quick review. First Kings chapter 18 is the main story of Elijah. Some call him the first of the prophets. That's not completely true, but when you think about the prophets, you think about Moses and the prophets. That's how a lot of the New Testament talks, Moses and the prophets, or some, some would say Moses and Elijah. So in Jewish, in Jewish literature, you would think of, okay, Elijah, well, that means all the rest of the books. Elijah covers all the books outside of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch or the Torah. And so Moses and Elijah are two of the main central key figures of the whole Old Testament. They kind of hold the Old Testament together. But Moses gets a lot more press than Elijah. Elijah only has a couple of chapters really in the whole Bible about him. His name means my God is the Lord. There's no hiding behind his faith when you have a name like that. That would be like, oh, my name is Jesus follower. Like, oh, well, there's really no hiding behind that. Uh, he's considered the first of the prophets. He defeated in chapter 18 the prophets of Baal, all 450 of them, with a sword. That was last week. He turned, as a result, God turned the hearts of the people back to himself. And so he was this like poet warrior. He went out, he challenged them to a duel. God showed up, God consumed an altar with fire out of heaven. And Elijah said to the people, choose this day whom you're going to serve is basically what he said. He said, how long will you waver between two opinions? And so there's this clear call to come back to God. He prayed out loud, God, send this fire so that you show people that you are drawing their hearts back to you. He was a major force that God used to draw the hearts of the people back to him in pure worship. That's not much different than what's happening now in the church, not just in the rest of the world, but in the church. There's really two strands of church that are starting off. Lots of little variations in there, but two strands of church that are happening. You have the progressive church that is moving forward and saying, everything goes, we'll just call it Christian. And then you have the church that's saying, I know it sounds a little archaic or barbaric, and it takes a little more of my thinking to figure out how to articulate my faith when it might offend but I think the gospel is clear and that in the gospel, the good news of Christ is clear in that, hey, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and sin is an actual thing. It's not just a theory and it's not just something somebody else does uh, like Hitler way back when. It's like something you or I do on a regular basis when we break the order of God's design, which has a myriad of things. If you want a list, just start with the top 10 in Exodus 20, the 10 commandments, and see how far you get before you're like, oh yeah, I've definitely done some of those today. Uh, if you get to murder and you've done some of those, let's talk after. But, um, but you can murder in your heart, Jesus says. He expounds upon that in the Sermon on the Mount. And so Jesus even, Jesus even tightens the net around what is sin. He tightens the net. He doesn't loosen it. And some folks say, oh, well, Jesus just came like to give everybody just a big high five and you're doing okay. That's not true. He came to actually tighten the net and say, let me tell you how much more complex this is and how actually broken you are. And then he goes to the cross to redeem us. And so 
Elijah is, to, is turning the hearts of the people back while getting rid of 450 prophets of Baal. We talked about he was a wild man. He was also an emotional man. Uh, when they do the Seder meal, if you've ever done a Seder meal, there's a cup that is filled and poured for Elijah. He's remembered even during the Passover. Many rabbis have said that he has visited them. I don't know how all that works. Um, he is used to usher in the Messiah. He's a little mysterious in the New Testament. They asked John the Baptist, are you Elijah reincarnated? Because he didn't die. Like, are you Elijah who came back? That's also like a little side note that I just glossed over. He was taken up by a chariot of fire into heaven. Not a bad way to go. Uh, and people were watching. They were like, well, okay. And so, like, but his, his mantle fell off, like his, his rabbi robe fell off, and Elisha has to choose to grab it and pick it up or not. That's another message for another day. And so, like, he's whisked up to heaven. So when John the Baptist comes on the scene, they're like, are you Elijah? And he says, I'm not. And then later on, Jesus says, Elijah came in, or, or John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah. And he is Elijah, if you can accept it. Elijah, who is still to come, by the way. And you're going, I don't know what all this means. And so he's like super mysterious. He's definitely a pogue. Um, there's more light. There's more. Did anybody? There we go. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. All right. He, there's like definitely more, uh, there's more drama than, there's one, here's one more, than even John, or even, uh, even uh, like, you know, uh, I'm trying, now I'm like really drawing a blank. I had it, I had it, I practiced it and it was going so well. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's more drama with Elijah than with John B. and Sarah. There we go. Okay. All right, there's like, he is just full of it. He's mentioned in James 5 and James 5 at the end of it. James says, Elijah prayed that it would not rain for three and a half years and it did not rain. Elijah prayed again that it would rain and it rained. He's, and then he goes on and he says, but Elijah was a man just like us. And so even James has to calm people down and say, he's not divinity, but boy, did God have his hand on him. And so he's just this mountain of a man he, uh, he's the forerunner to Christ. He's one of really three forerunners to Christ. Uh, I mean, the list goes on. It's pretty amazing what all happens. But then you get to chapter 19 of 1 Kings. Such a mountaintop experience in chapter 18. I mean, like the legend is created. Then there's chapter 19. Let me read you the first few verses. Ahab, Ahab is the king of the northern part of Israel. He has a wife who is a priestess to Baal. Her name is Jezebel. It's a name shrouded in infamy. Everybody, Christian, pagan, doesn't matter. Most everybody has the concept of what a Jezebel is. And so her name is Jezebel. She's the original. And he goes to her, Ahab the king, and tells Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with a sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then Elijah was afraid. He arose, he ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree 
and he asked that he might die. I hope you see that in your Bible. I'm not sure what version you have. I'm reading from the ESV, but my version says, he asked that he might die. That's a suicidal prayer. He asked that he might die saying, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life. I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and he slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake of baked, baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and he drank and he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, arise and eat for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and he ate and he drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Look, I think what we see here is this moment where he questions God after an unquestionable moment with God. If you've ever had that time, this past Sunday we had six people who all come on Tuesday nights, all get baptized. A few of them are in the room. I see Neely back there. A few of them are in the room tonight. Um, Ella was up here talking. Look, you go to a spiritual high. Somebody in your office comes to Christ. Somebody in your family prays to receive Christ. You finally have the courage to have the conversation with a roommate who is uh, maybe sleeping around with a girlfriend or a boyfriend and they call themselves a Christian and you're like, hey, this is really hurting your, your witness and it's doing some other damage, blah, blah, blah. You're like, you, you have one of these moments and, they, and they, re they respond and they're like, you're exactly right. I need to, I need to get my life right with the Lord. And like th these moments where you're like, man, God, I have seen you work do not be surprised. I would call that a 1 Kings 18 moment. Do not be surprised if right after that doesn't come one of these 1 Kings 19 moments. Elijah has seen God do the impossible. In fact, the nation has seen God do the impossible, and now he finds himself in such a low place that he's asking God to take his life. I heard Charles Stanley one time preaching. Charles Stanley, the old First Baptist Atlanta pastor, Andy Stanley's uh, dad, if you're familiar with all the North Point churches. Uh, he preached one time, and he's got that unmistakable, like, southern draw, old man voice. He's had it for a hundred years. Um, and anyway, Heather still loves to hear Charles preach every once in a while. I'm like, who are you listening to? She's sitting by, like, a crackly old radio, because it just makes it, like, even more, like, perfect. But he, he came up with an acronym, and uh, that, that was something preachers used to do a lot. We don't do it quite as much anymore. But his acronym was HALT. And I'll like, I, I never wrote it down. I just like, remembered it. Like, it just stuck. And he said, when you find yourself in a... I can't really do it. Anyway, uh, he said, he was talking. I think he was talking about this. I don't even remember the passage. I think he was talking about this. But he said, when you find yourself in an Elijah moment, HALT. And I was like, HALT. I'm like, I was driving in my 1988, this is like, like late 90s, but I had a 1988 Chevrolet Celebrity four-door car. I called it Old Brown. Old Brown didn't work in a lot of ways, but it got me places. And uh, anyway, uh, so I'm driving Old Brown around and I'm listening and, uh, and I hear him saying, halt. And I was like, what's he going to say next? He said, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. If you find yourself hungry, angry, lonely, and tired, you need to halt. And I was like, Charles, that's why. That's why people come to hear you. That's good. But I think that's exactly what was going on with Elijah. He found himself 
hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. He had all, uh, he, had, he had the full uh, quadfecta, if you will. Like he had the whole package to be able to say, I'm ready for a breakdown. But he didn't halt. He kept pressing and pressing and pressing. And we find him in chapter 19, afraid of God's little G and Jezebel, the queen, not the first in command, not Ahab, who he saw face to face, his wife. And I think that that helps me understand that depression is certainly this, this real thing that hits us, even if the circumstances don't warrant themselves as being depressed over. It would be easy to step back and say, no, like, let's, let's look, Elijah, like God is clearly bigger than the gods, little g, God is clearly bigger than Jezebel, God is clearly bigger than all of those things, so why are we so stressed? Why are we so worried? And I think it, would, it doesn't matter the reality of the situation. Depression itself can trump the reality of the situation. And so he found himself in a deep depression, and partly he brought it on himself. And so I think that leads us to two strands of this depression that can happen after a spiritual high. One is depression that I bring on myself, and the other is a depression because of stuff that happens to us externally. I want Will to come on up, and I just want to chat with him for a minute. Will and I were talking pretty candidly because he's gone through a couple of different bouts of depression, and the first bout, I think Will would agree that it was probably one of those times that he said, you know what, I kind of brought this one on myself, and that's going to tie in with where we're going. So, why don't you just tell us a little bit about that first round that you experienced with some depression? Yeah, it's great walking up while like, it's like depression and you're like walking up. <laughs> well, um, I appreciate you being candid. No, no, and no. it's like, it's like family night. Like we're all family. It's family. It's great. Hey, we're yeah. all family here. It's like a Logan's Roadhouse, you know, it's just, we're all family. Like, yeah, like uh, that's exactly <laughs> what I was thinking. Like a Logan's Roadhouse. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, depression. Um, <laughs> so. That's great. Um. Yeah, basically, um, if you were at the 11 o'clock service, I got baptized, shared a little bit of my story, and um, became a believer in eighth grade. Um, around the same time, I started leading worship and doing all this, and um, you know, I was in that epic identity crisis phase where I was no longer like good at sports, and so I was like, what am I going to do? And so I found out, like... I can do like music, I can write songs, and, and I really love it, and I'm like decent at it. And um, then that began to become like an identity touchstone for me. So I was like the worship leader. And um, that's kind of like what I did. And, um, but at the same time, um, there were these, you know, sin practices and habits that had been stored up and built over time and, you know, candidly, like stuff like pornography and, you know, all sorts of like private inward sins and then outward um, sins, depending on the group I was around. And it created this really intense shame and hiding, um, not only from others, but uh, almost like the sense of, you know, inward division and hiding from myself. And so it created this sense of, you know, an 
I'm an imposter, and um, I don't belong anywhere. Um, I don't belong leading worship, but I'm also, like, I love the Lord, so I don't want to, like, be lost in, in the world, and I don't want to be lost in my, des- my desires. And so it really became um, an intense, like, all-encompassing thing. And, um, yeah, as, as that tension continued to build, um, it really began to give growth to suicidal thoughts um, and basically just rooted in this desire for, like, escape and for release. And so that kind of was when it, it like, hit the low point. Yeah, I think, so when you hit that low point because you were, you know, you were living a double life, basically. And you kind of had that First Kings 18 moment where God gives you a purpose and a calling and he starts to use you. And you have a, a public role when you're up in front leading worship. And then you've got this, this other kind of thing going on that's eating you up inside. Satan comes in and says, hey, here's the best option. But if you weren't here, it would just be better. How, how did you and your story, how did the Lord break you free of that? Yeah, so around that time, there was a guy named Coleman who was working for our youth group, and he started discipling me. And one of the things he did um, in December of that year is he, he challenged me to read through the Bible in a year with him. And I'd never been consistent in Bible reading. And so I like jumped in the deep end and it's just like four chapters of Old Testament a day. And um, it was awesome, really hard, really confusing. And so I'm like, I start out the gate strong and then, you know, we're, we're in like mid Genesis, late Genesis and, and all this um, these thoughts that I was just talking about are really beginning to take root. And then we're crawling through Exodus and Leviticus and that like hope is dying. And so one day, um, I'm gonna pull this up so I don't botch it, but one day the Lord brought me, um, to the lowest of lows. And I was at the sort of like, I guess, decision point of, um, dealing with, the suicidal thoughts, and it's like, well, do I do it? And I remember crying out to the Lord um, in, in that moment of really great despair and just essentially saying, like, God, I have to hear from you. I, I don't, I'm not going to press on anymore by myself. And um, I'm tired of feeling like I'm pressing through. And so then I went downstairs, went to do my... Uh, daily reading, fully expecting not to hear from God, because uh, I felt like I hadn't the whole time. And the reading for that day was Deuteronomy 7 through 9, and I was like, great, Deuteronomy, <laughs> awesome. <laughs> um, and the passage starts off, like the first five verses, Moses is speaking to the Israelites and um, speaking he's basically saying, when the Lord brings you into this land that he's about to give you, you have to destroy every altar, cut down every idol, and, you know, build up a remembrance of the Lord because he is doing this thing. And that really crushed me uh, because I looked at my life and I saw all the altars of sin that I had really, like, built further up since uh, coming to the Lord and um, just felt that, that weight of, of heavy conviction and regret 
And I just remember having these thoughts of like, God saved me so that I could serve him, so that I could lead worship, so that I could, you know, use these gifts that he's given me. But I see all these people who seem to be more gifted than me. And that's not even to touch on like, you know, the, the things that I'm enslaved myself to. And so I, I just felt this heavy conviction. And then verse six, um, I started reading again. And Moses says, for you are people holy to the Lord your God. For the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. And it's not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the least of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is faithful to the oath that, that he swore to your fathers that he's brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit pierced my heart with a new understanding um, that God's motivation, the motivating principle behind Jesus' death on the cross um, was not to use me, but it was to have me. And it wasn't to have me so that he could use me, but it was to have me because he loved me. And um, that you know, when I was operating under the, the principle that I had to shake these things so that God could use me, that, that duty-driven perspective can only drive you deeper into shame and, and fear. And it was that fresh understanding of, like, the Lord wants you to do these things, but it's not because he needs you to, but it's out of a response to the understanding that he loves you, that he has set you free, and he wants you to walk in it. And so that began a new chapter of of you know, tearing down idols and, and burning altars, not out of fear of sin, much less um, an unhealthy fear of God, but it, it was realizing that I've been invited into something so much better. And so that really began to turn the page. Let's hear it for Will. I appreciate it, Will. I think it's so good that you can candidly share your story and to kind of get away from, uh, to kind of get out from behind the guitar and the keys and to say, hey, let me just tell you a little bit about me. I, I appreciate that Will just illustrated what it means to live out that, per, that passage we've looked at first in 2 Corinthians 12, where in our weakness, he is strong. The Lord came to Will in that weak moment, in that broken moment. The Lord didn't turn his back on Will. The Lord gave Will strength that he did not have to be able to live a strong, strong life. And now he stands up here, a man with a, a, a clear conscience who's pursuing the Lord and leading us, and, and, uh, and he's been partnered by a great wife. They just celebrated one year, by the way. Is that right? Like, yeah, that way. So I think that there's definitely Satan's plan out there that's clear. Jesus said it in John 10, 10. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. But Satan, the enemy, comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And so the plan is to steal, kill, and destroy. I think literally the plan is Satan wants to kill you. He wants all believers to end up not being alive anymore. He genuinely wants to put suicidal thoughts in people's minds. I'll give you a, for instance, I can't tell you how many folks that have come to me with a story not unlike Will's and 
it goes something like this. I was, I was living for the Lord, and it was tough living for the Lord. Satan came up to me, it felt like, and he said, you need to treat yourself. That's the little line from the office. And so I treat myself, and what do I do? Well, maybe it's a hookup culture. I can't find a date. I can't find a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Everybody else seems to have one. So you know what? We'll do a little bit of the hookup culture, and we, we get a hookup. And then what happens? I'm in a worse spot than I was before. And I've had multiple folks come to me and say, Thomas, I'm at my wit's end. And what they're genuinely saying is, I'm at a suicidal point. Like if this is the way life goes, I just want to check out or, or cash in the cards. Because what God, what Will just said is that when the Lord redeems you like he did Elijah, it is to have you be a light to the world. And when you're a light to the world, you're outward facing. Satan's goal is to get you inward facing only thinking about you. And most of this whole first part of the chapter, all Elijah was doing was thinking about him. I can tell you if you're in a good spot or not in general, if most of your quiet time is looking up a verse about how you can have a better life for you. If most of your Bible reading is me-focused, then the enemy is at work in your life. Most of our pursuit of the Lord, we ought to be thinking what Paul said, where, man, it would be so much better to be with Christ. And that's not a suicidal thought. That's the thought of, I get the reality of how great Jesus is. But since I'm not with Christ yet and I live, to live is Christ. To die is to gain, but to live is Christ, where he says that in Philippians chapter 1. And so let's look. Do you have that map, Brandon, that picture of the map? I, um, I keep this map on my desk at home. And, uh, and so Elijah, when he started this whole journey, the prophets of Baal, it was like way, way up top here. Beersheba is down here. And so when we get to 1 Kings 19, he's already gone the entire distance of the country. That's about 150 miles. He basically went from Atlanta to Macon to get away from this woman. And then he goes to sleep because imagine he's tired, and he probably hasn't eaten a lot, so I imagine he's hungry. An angel wakes him up twice, feeds him, and says, the journey is too far for you. Keep eating and go back to sleep. And then we get to verse 9, uh, or then we go to verse 8, and it says, and he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. I think if we could package that food, we would have a gold mine. And so he goes for 40 days, 40 nights in the strength of that food. But what he has done is he's turning a corner. He's no longer running from Jezebel, but he's running to God. It doesn't matter if you get a nail in your eye in Jan on January 28th or if you've got a major sin problem in your life. Either way, if you're in a low spot, and even if it's not as extreme as you saying, God, take my life. So whether it's a self-induced depression or whether it's just circumstances that happen to you and it's led to some sort of depression, in both cases, the right response is to run to the Lord. And so, by verse 9, he's running to the Lord. And he came to a cave, and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? 
And Elijah said, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. The people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, I'm the only one left that, and they seek my life to take it away. And God said, go out, stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a still, small voice. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak. And he went out, and he stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him. I'm at the end of verse 13. What are you doing here, Elijah? Same question. Elijah's going to give the same answer. I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. Like he's repeating himself like God didn't hear him the first time. It wasn't that God needed him to ask the question twice. It was he needed him to answer it different. Why was he there? Well, what initially set him on that journey was, well, God, you did all this incredible stuff, and then you didn't stop that lady from coming after me, and I'm really kind of scared of her, and I knew if I came to this mountain, I would find you, and so, like, I need you to get rid of that woman. I need you to off her. I need you to do something. But instead, he puts up this pseudo-religious response of, God, I'm so good. I've been having my quiet time, and I go to church, and why won't these things work out in my life? And the Lord, the same one who in Matthew 12, 20 says, a bruised reed I will not break and a smoldering wick I will not snuff out. The gentle God that we have, the loving Savior himself said that in Matthew 12, 20. This is what the Lord says. Verse 18 or verse 15, and the Lord said to him, go. Return on your way, the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshai, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel Mahalah, shall anoint, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place, and the one who escapes the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death, the one who escapes the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. The Lord's response is to Elijah as it would be to us. Tonight, as we're singing the last couple of songs in a few minutes, and we're worshiping, if you know you're in one of those spots or one of those places that's going to take you to one of those low spots, and you begin to confess, you begin to run to God, and you confess, God, I'm looking at stuff I shouldn't be looking at. I'm doing stuff with her I shouldn't be doing. I am just trying to please my boss more than I'm trying to please you. I'm so worried about this thing. Whatever it is. I think the response the Lord gave Elijah is the same response he gives me and he gives you. And the response is, I didn't save you to be worried about you. I saved you and I left you here on earth 
to be on mission for me for them. He's going to tell you, your life is all about you. So stop. That's exactly what he told Will. He told Will, Will, your life is all about you. I set you free from all those sinful altars that you've been building. So walk away from them and walk towards me, and as a result, you're going to serve others in the name of Christ. In Matthew 26, Jesus has a very similar moment, and he kind of mirrors this moment with Elijah. In Matthew 26, Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, and when he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane after the Passover meal, he goes, and there are drops of blood coming off of his head, and he says he is sorrowed to the point of death. And our very own Savior had the same two options. He could start focusing on himself. He knew, I am troubled to the point of death. He could have gone into a woe is me, woe is me, woe is me. But instead, he runs to his father. And three times, even though his friends fall asleep, three times he prays, God, this is really bothering me. Can you please take it away? God, please take this away. And finally, he says, it is not my will. It is your will. And in the other gospels, it records him saying, and it is for this time and this purpose that I have come. And so you see, even Jesus' eyes go from being all on himself to being on his Father. And it wasn't a sinful moment of his eyes being on himself. It was a very human moment. And in that moment, he says, not me, but you. And he's our model to fight through what it looks like to not have a self-absorbed Christian life. If you want a self-absorbed Christian life, I can give you 10 different preachers to watch, and they'll tell you how great you are and how you're having your best life and what you need to do to have your best life and your best day and all your wildest dreams come true and your bank accounts be filled. And that's fine. If that's what you want, go for it. But it won't, it won't work because it's not the God that's in this book. It's not the God that exists. Look, the God that exists, he didn't even wipe like the tears away. He was like, Elijah, fine, if you want to answer the question, I'll just tell you what to do. Get out of here. Go back. I have work for you. There's two little things that I'll bring up, and then I'll just kind of land the plane because we're gonna, we'll go long if not. Um, one is the, the, the tree, and the other one is, is the mountain. The tree we'll come back to in a second. You know, he laid under a broom tree uh, in the first few verses, but, but the mountain. For a long time, I wondered, like, why that mountain? Why did he go to Mount Horeb? I've never heard of Mount Horeb. Well, I had. I just didn't read the words. You know why I went to Mount Horeb? Because God always shows up at Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb is the mountain in Exodus 3 that had the burning bush. Mount Horeb is the place in Exodus 20 where the presence of God descended and the Ten Commandments were given. Elijah knew, I got enough strength for 40 days. Where do I go to find God? When I was in, in, uh, at, at Kennesaw State as a student, I would go and I would hike at Kennesaw Mountain and Little Kennesaw Mountain, and, uh, and I found this rock on top. And I just started, like, I had some things going on in life, and so I would just go to this little rock, and I would pray. And it kind of became known as, like, my prayer rock. And I took one other buddy there, and we'd go to prayer rock is what we called it because that was a very creative name. 
because um, the rock that we prayed on. And so, like, we would go up Little Kennesaw Mountain. If it was hot, we would just pour sweat. And if it was cold, we would freeze. In the winter, there could be ice on the rocks. And in the summer, it would just be, like, not, not ice, um, but just be my sweat on the rocks. And so we would get up there. And, I mean, I prayed about everything. And I found that it was perfect. Like, it had, like, a little kneeling part that you could kneel. And, like, your hands would fit perfect on top of it. I was like, this place is amazing. And, uh, and so I would go there, and I would pray. And any time... It just, it never failed. Anytime I was in one of these pits, I would just find myself like, I need to go there and pray. There's nothing magical about the place. It's not Mount Horeb. It's not the Mount of God. But for me, I knew I'm going to intentionally go seek the Lord. And so I would drive there and I would park and I would hike up the mountain and I would sweat and I would get there and I would pray or I would freeze and I would get there and I would pray. But I had this spot that I knew it just seems like God shows up in that place. And it, was, it had nothing to do with the place with a little bit of spiritual maturity. What happened was, when, the, when we hit those low points, what we see in this story and all throughout the Bible is we don't run from God, we run to God. And so I would grab my Bible and I would go. And one of the things I prayed for there all the time was whoever my wife was going to be. And so it seemed like the perfect place to take her when I proposed. And so we went there and I proposed and I was like, hey, by the way, you've been prayed for a lot here. And uh, anyway, that's another story though for another day. But I think you all need one of those places where you're like, I just got to go find God. And you know what? You may have to leave your friends, your roommates, your whatever, and you're just like, I'm going to go seek the Lord. And that's what he does. And God meets him there. And when you seek the Lord, I would say, look, I think what you ought to do is exactly what he did. I think you ought to cry out. I think you ought to confess. I think you ought to have your Bible and you ought to open it. And even in Deuteronomy 7, like Will was saying, the Lord can speak to you. I think you need to continually get alone with the Lord and do these kinds of things. And then, last but not least, here's what I think you need to do, and here's what I wrestled and wrestled and wrestled over this text. Here's what I think, if I could boil it down, is the anecdote of the text. I think at the end of the day, the Lord, if, let's just put him as a Christian. Let's put Elijah as a Christian. If he was a Christian, if Jesus had come, at that point he was a follower of God. But we'll make it modern-day terms. I think what God told Elijah, in essence, was, be a Christian. You have the Holy Spirit. You have the power of God. You live a redeemed life. So do it. Don't wait for the feelings. Don't wait for the, the, that magic moment. Don't just do it. Be a Christian. When you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that we just looked at, or chapter 9, uh, 10 through, or 8 through 10, you look at those verses. What, is, what happens in those verses? Well, that's where Paul says, I prayed three times for this thing to be removed, and it wasn't removed. And what I found is God didn't remove it, and that's okay. I'm still just to be a Christian. And what I found is in every one of those weaknesses, the Lord shows up in a way that he wouldn't show up otherwise if I didn't have that weakness. And I think so many of us are just waiting for this, like, electric charge of, like, ah, now I have my purpose, now I have my mission and I think the call for most of, I think the Lord up in heaven is like, just be what I've called you to be. Just live with the Holy Spirit in you. Follow the Holy Spirit. Seek me. Do my will. And it's, it, you won't find yourself in nearly as many of these valleys. Look, the Lord is going to speak strong to you when you get away and you seek him. He's going to be gentle. He will always be clear. 
He was clear, he was strong, but he was gentle. And he will speak to you the same way. And so I just got to ask you, when was the last time you just pulled away and said, I just got to go meet with the Lord? I think every Christian ought to have a habit of this. Maybe for some of you it's Tuesday nights, maybe it's Sunday mornings, but I think you need like one other something where you just pull away and you say, God, I just need to be with you. What you will come away with if the Lord meets you in that place is not eyes on you, but it'll be eyes on him. And as the eyes are locked on him, that strength begins to flow through you. And you'll find that in your weakness, he then is perfect. And by the way, I think that the tree is in this story for a very specific reason. It's the same kind of tree that Hagar, the, the maid of Sarah that Abraham had the child with, had Ishmael with, it's the same tree that she sat under. It's also the same tree that's written about in Psalm 1. And I think the Lord was giving Elijah a picture in his despair of Elijah. You know you're supposed to be like this tree. And in Psalm 1, it says of that tree that the righteous person is like the tree planted by streams of water who bears its fruit and its season and whose leaf does not wither. When we seek the Lord and run to him instead of run to ourselves, when he meets us in that spot, when he turns our weakness into strength through the power of his spirit, people will look and they will know your propensity for weakness in certain areas and they will say, in essence, your leaf has not withered and you bear your fruit every season, you are a place that I can find shade under. And so that is my hope for you, is that you can be a place that provides shade and not the person who's always needing it. Let me pray for us. Lord, Elijah battled a whole lot of depression, battled a really hard time, and yet he did the right thing. He ran to you. Lord, may we run to you, and may we do it as intentionally as he did. Lord, show us how to confess and to call out. Show us how you speak to us. Show us how you meet us, Lord. And Lord, may we not give up just like Elijah did until we hear your voice, and just like Will did until we hear your voice. Lord, I thank you that you show up in places like Deuteronomy 7 and 1 Kings 18. Father, may we be a people whose eyes are not on us, but are on you, and a people who are made strong through you in our weaknesses for you. In Jesus' name, amen.